0: okay and welcome to episode 11 of the we do science podcast from guru performance today we have um, a podcast which is about a topic that i am personally quite obsessed about and um, it's all thanks to my expert guest here uh bob seabaha hi bob Hello, Lawrence. How are you? I'm great, mate. It's good to chat with you just now off air, and uh, I guess I should uh, should introduce you to the listeners. I know uh, some some of our listeners will know who you are, but for those of you that don't, Bob is uh, he's like me. He's sort of a combination of a practitioner uh, and an academic, but um, very much a practitioner. He wore wa- he is a. Uh, exercise physiologist has a master's degree in that and has another master's in nutrition just like I do Uh, but unlike uh, Bob uh, another accolade that he has is he was the US Olympic Committee uh, sports dietitian Um, and uh, Bob am I right in saying uh, much of much of your focus um, in that sort of area at the elite elite level has been with um, athletes like Olympic triathletes
1: right? Absolutely, triathletes, runners. Um, I, I I did a lot with endurance athletes. I still worked with a little bit of strength and power and, and aesthetics, but most, the majority, definitely with my endurance athletes.
0: Yeah, and and uh, and obviously uh, for those for those listeners that are actually triathletes, you'll have to forgive me, but these guys are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> triathletes. I know. I know you're a triathlete, so that makes you crazy too. I. Uh, yep. I'm a bit on the big side to be, I'm more of a rugby guy, uh, um, and uh, I'm really awful at swimming, so (laughs) I sink, so I'll never make a triathlete, but I do work a lot with uh, triathletes, and I've had the pleasure of um, working with those crazy guys, and uh, trying to distract them from um, uh, uh, spending their fortune on modifying their bikes, uh, (laughs) and and trying to save one gram uh, in weight off their bike by... uh, uh, spending a fortune on space-age materials when actually they need to lose a couple of pounds, if you know what I mean, uh, off their own uh, off their own body fat. Uh, but anyway, um, we're going to get into some cool stuff, primarily um, on a topic uh, called metabolic efficiency. For those listeners that have been listening to my podcast, Dust Bar, uh, you'll think, hang on, that sounds familiar. Uh, and that is because we have, uh, uh, did a, a really popular podcast all about metabolic flexibility with mike t nelson um and in fact bob uh, your name come up a couple of times in that podcast so your ears may have been burning yeah, yeah and there are yeah. some similarities and we'll we'll jump in on that but i just wanted to um say thank you to you personally because um i've known you um for quite a long time i met you when i was in the states and you were giving a presentation um at the NSCA. Uh, conference or a nutrition workshop uh, uh must be eight years ago or six, I seven. think so yeah quite a long time and it's the same conference or workshop that I met Joey Antonio who was on the last yeah. podcast so I met you both there and you yeah. both have had a profound impact on my uh, professional life and my interests and so on but I, I'm gonna have to lay blame on you Bob for being mostly <laughs> responsible for my obsessions and um, my wife will probably um, be sending you hate mail now because again (laughs) it's thanks to you I spent all my money on all my lab kit trying to do the stuff that you uh, that that you got me into so so uh, yeah no it's uh, it's great and uh, I encourage all the listeners to um, you know look into some of your great works you've published a lot I know um, like, uh, you've done some chapters in things like the NSCA's book on sports nutrition. Um, you've, uh, also co-authored a book, uh, on nutrient timing, um, and, uh, with, uh, um, your, uh, uh, Dr. O- is it Dr. Austin? Yep. Krista yeah. Austin. Krista yep. Austin, uh, who I know is an American physiologist and sports nutritionist, but actually worked over here in the UK for the IS Yep. For a while. Uh, so um, I know uh, many of our UK sports nutrition and sports scientists may be familiar with her. Um, but anyway, um, I, I digress here uh, because there are some uh, other books that you've written on metabolic efficiency, which I recommend everyone reads, as well as nutrient periodization and so on. These are all great um Practical, pragmatic orientated text that takes the science into, you know, into the real world, and it's really solid stuff. And as I say, it's had a profound impact on my own practice, um, and now the research that I'm conducting. So anyway, ah. that's enough of uh, that's enough of me uh, blabbing on there. Uh, <laughs> so let's just jump straight into that brain of yours, and uh, let's get into metabolic efficiency. So um, uh, let's differentiate this a little bit from metabolic flexibility and give it Mm -hmm. its own sort of intro. What actually is metabolic efficiency?
1: Yeah, metabolic efficiency in terms of my definition is is really our our body's efficiency in, in utilizing our endogenous stores of carbohydrate and fat at different intensity and durations of exercise also, at rest, so what we 're doing is just kind of looking at the body 's oxidation rates of carbon fat um, throughout a series of intensities of exercise, be it on the treadmill, be it on the bike, um, just kind of kind of taking a little physiological peek into the oxidation states of an athlete
0: yeah, no, and for reasons that we 'll delve into, I think this is particularly of interest because. A lot of the times, and we delved into this, uh, well, I've said this in numerous podcasts, but particularly in the metabolic um, flexibility podcast is, you know, those of us that have have done exercise physiology, we've all been introduced to this whole Brooks crossover Mm. concept, you know, this idea that at low intensity, we start to burn, um, you know, mostly fats as a fuel. And it's only when it gets uh, sort of uh, more anaerobic that we start to uh, use uh, carbohydrates and there Great. comes a point where we're using considerably more if not pure carbohydrates um, but of course one forgets that, that when you know, they start drawing the, those charts that's based off um, a lot of data points and um, right. as I have said many a times and this is one of my many catchphrases Bob on this, yeah. uh, on this uh, podcast series but uh, you, know, we, we, you know scientists publish means Yes. And um uh, you know any anybody that we're working with as an individual could be an outlier uh Absolutely. and and those graphs and charts that we see don't represent exactly what's going on. So I mean I, I mean how how did you even get into this?
1: Yeah, fa- fascinating question because uh you know I often think about that too and I've been asked that question and you know it was it was probably it's probably around 2000 2003, 2002, 2003, I was, you know, I've been working as a practical performance, you know, dietitian for, for years and have worked in a couple facilities and now on my own. And when I was working in one facility up in Boulder, um, working with a lot of athletes and even with myself being an endurance athlete, always ran into the, the wonderful GI distress monster during competition. So nausea, bloating, diarrhea. I mean, you, you name it, right? So I worked with a lot of endurance athletes in the Boulder area and just, over and over repeatedly these athletes would come in and see me and you know we do the food log we look at everything and um, you know, help them in terms of performance but I couldn't help them de- get rid of GI distress so I was I was banging my head against the wall probably took me a good six months um, of going back to my textbooks going back to the research and just seeing if I missed anything you know throughout school or seeing if I wasn't taught anything that I should have been taught and, and basically you know something came up all of a sudden and I said, "Oh, you know, looked at the crossover concept again and went back to my biochem books and, you know, looked at how many stores of carbohydrate and fat we have in our bodies and I just started looking at that a little bit and I said, I wonder if there's a way to manipulate what we can oxidize. I know we can't, I mean, we can manipulate what we can store by different dietary approaches, but I wonder if I can manipulate what we can oxidize and and utilize in the body in terms of fat and carbohydrate." And and looked into it a little bit more and Really, this whole metabolic efficiency brainchild began as trying to get rid of GI distress in endurance athletes, and little did I know all the great ancillary effects from this metabolic efficiency—not only curing GI distress in endurance athletes, but also um, manipulating body weight, changing body composition, decreasing risk factors for for metabolic uh, risk uh, disease states. Um, so it's so it's it's. It's kind of a, you know, it's been a probably a 10 to 12 year process of learning that the body is able to do more than we actually thought it could. And, and in terms of my schooling, more than, than I was taught, um, you know, in traditional school. So it was, it was then that I started figuring out different dietary approaches to improve the body's ability to oxidize fats and, and preserve its very, very precious endogenous towards of carbohydrate and then a couple of years later i, I kind of put my head back to the the chopping block and you know kind of i asked myself is there a way to measure this and and obviously you know with the exercise physiology background i started poking around with the metabolic card and and came up with a great protocol that that we can actually use to um manipulate uh, to, to one test a person's metabolic efficiency and based on that we can actually set Proper dietary uh, prescriptions and even exercise prescriptions, just based on the quantitative data of you know what I refer to as popping the hood, looking underneath the hood of an athlete, and seeing seeing how efficient their body is at that particular time uh, and, and, and period in their in their training cycle
0: yeah and, and, and i 'm so pleased that you did because you know for want of repeating what I said at the beginning, the fact that I had learned about this from you made me. Uh, look yep. into this, and I had purchased at the time a fairly elementary mm-hmm. metabolic testing system. And even then, it was kind of like, Hang on, this doesn't make sense. This, you know, and putting in yep. phone calls to the manufacturers and saying, yep. something wrong with the sensors here. Because I've got <laughs> a guy sitting here, he's at rest um, doing a resting metabolic rate assessment. We're not even exercising, and yeah. he's fasted and done all the right things, and yeah, he's just burning through carbs. Absolutely. So there's got to be a problem. He's not diabetic. You know, like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Anything that is just a one-off. And then by the time you've done 15, 20 people and you're seeing what ultimately we now, I think the term inter-individual variability is a lot more right. common now. Yep. Uh, we're starting to recognize the huge variations that exist from person to person. And therefore, the use of this kind of technology just becomes incredibly useful. And the, this understanding, as I mentioned before, we you know, we, we, we're publishing means when we look at this stuff. And, of course, the average physiologist or practitioner who doesn't necessarily have access to mm-hmm. testing individuals is, is, you know, is assuming that it's as the chart shows you. Right. So so I really want to delve into a number of areas here. Um, but let's just quickly discuss, I mean, you know, what, what why be more metabolically efficient? Yeah. I mean, what's the yeah. actual advantage to that?
1: Yeah it's it's a great question because I get that all the time from athletes saying well, well who cares right my I'm I'm you know my performance is good my recovery is good so they think um, you know, so I, I look at metabolic efficiency and teaching your body to to utilize more of its fat stores, preserve its carbohydrate stores. I look at it from a very well, the first very elementary state and saying what what is the the first limiter of nutrition uh, performance, right? In, in terms of athletic performance, what limits an athlete in terms of their performance? And you know, aside from hydration, and that's probably a whole another podcast that you could you could definitely form some arguments about. It's carbohydrate depletion. It's glycogen depletion. So what I'm trying to kind of show athletes in particular is if we can preserve your carbohydrates and actually teach your body to oxidize fat at higher intensities, you'll be able to perform longer at a higher intensity rate. So that's that's just on the performance side. Um, We also see body weight changes. We see body composition changes, significant body comp changes. Uh, We also see health change. And I see, I think a lot of individuals have to, you know, I, I work with a lot of athletes who focus on performance, and I need to take them a couple steps back and remind them, if you're not healthy, you can't perform. So while they're focused on all these numbers and performance and times, I need to make sure that we're focused on health markers. So we actually do a lot of blood work assessments um, with athletes and their physicians because we know that changing a person's metabolic efficiency can actually improve their blood lipids quite substantially.
0: Yeah, so it's yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I've I've also started to do uh, some blood testing now, uh, fortunately, right. where my lab's based we 've got lots of labs around us it 's kind of a mm. practical thing and, and uh, some of the sort of questions we 're looking at is well you know is there an influence here on insulin resistance you know is there a mm-hmm. factor there uh, you know what what kind of other things like like you mentioned uh, lipid uh, status cholesterol uh, and some other right. issues like you know cortisol. Uh, and uh, some other uh, hormones, particularly the, the the impact that stress may have. So, but, I mean, what, you know, what, what are kind of the different situations then that, that might be happening here? Mm-hmm. And, and by that, I mean, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I, I have noticed um, just in resting assessments, I'm seeing someone um, burning higher levels of carbohydrates than they really should be. And yet right. when they start to exercise... I see that normalise in some people and in others. I don't see that normalise. I see they continue to burn through right. uh, uh, predominantly more carbs than fats at ridiculously low levels of intensity. Right. Um, so, so I mean, why why is that? And obviously, what are the benefits of fixing that?
1: Yeah, I think I think they're you know they're kind of shorting themselves a little bit because if they're you know the the, the layman's term these days, a lot of uh, a lot of articles and lay press are coining the term sugar burners, right? So there are a lot of uh, those who who oxidize carbohydrate pretty significantly throughout their entire test, like you were saying. Those are the ones um, particularly that need to to refeed themselves quite often. And and when we refeed, especially in the endurance athlete world, when you refeed consistently during an event, you introduce your body's GI system, your digestive system, to, to becoming uh, very, very angry, right? Because the I call it digestive confusion because you've got the blood shunting response. When you exercise, all the blood is obviously shunted or most of the blood is shunted to your working muscles for locomotion. But then when you introduce all these calories and gel format and bars and drinks and you name it, the blood must be shunted back somewhat to the digestive system system so they're they're kind of shorting themselves a little bit because they're they are risking a higher degree of gi distress they're also risking having to take a lot of calories somehow with them and and again i work a lot with endurance athletes who have issues trying to find places to put food you know it's not on the sidelines they're they're in a sport where they don't have a sidelines they don't have breaks so they've got to find a way to you know deliver or or carry the food with them. And and to your point earlier, you know, these these athletes, specifically triathletes, they don't want to carry any extra weight. So again, from the the onus of making the body more metabolically efficient, I've I've reduced hourly intake of calories in in triathletes in particular um, from, you know, 50 to 75% per hour, which is a blessing in disguise for them. So, you know, regarding those who are sugar burners, I, I say this all the time. It really is a simple dietary shift that will improve metabolic efficiency. The hardest part about this is not that it's a diet; it is actually a lifelong habit that someone can periodize into their training. But the hardest thing is actually recognizing the behavior change and if and if a person is ready for this or not. Because you know these these sugar burners, quote unquote sugar burners, high carb. You know you see the high resting RQ or RER, and it just stays consistent throughout the test. They're eating a very high carbohydrate diet, and when you ask them even to moderate their carbohydrates to, to not a low carb diet but a moderate lo- lo- level of carbs they they freak out you know they're not able to reduce their the quantity of carbohydrates, so I see that as the the biggest sticking point for most of these athletes, and they're just not ready to make this change or they don't believe you know they don't trust in the process
0: yeah i and that's a good point there because I think sometimes people tend to be a little bit too dogmatic about what, people should do you know like oh everyone should go keto you know like you've got yep. the keto you know fat adapted absolutely channel. you've yep. got the uh, no it's carbohydrates we've got you know decades of proof showing that it's all about carbs the thing yep. is 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 uh, and again my i know listeners are going to start laughing again because almost every podcast i use the word context but it really is yeah it's so it, about yeah. context and yep. and uh, as lane norton was saying in um, in uh, in a podcast uh, on metabolic adaptation which is you know relevant to what we're talking about here is okay. sometimes you know the, the the best diet in the world from a scientific perspective is not necessarily the best diet in the world from a pragmatic point of view because right. it's only really what you can do realistically and for the long term because of course we know this from Research on uh, on fat loss, you know, the only really successful fat loss diet is is the one that you can be consistent with, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So
0: being pragmatic here is extremely important. So maybe um, the, the the beauty, like you say, you you know, you you you're looking under the hood or under the bonnet for uh, for our uh, UK listeners. Uh, it, having a peek inside of the black box is where this technology comes in useful because you can demonstrate. To people, what's it's, going on, and yes. maybe you take it in chunks, don't you, and say, "Well, look, maybe just a sh- just an adjustment to one's diet and nutrition, yeah. and periodize it, like you say, can yep. start to to make you go in the right direction." Um, but whilst the idea is still in my head, let's just yeah. quickly discuss um, a particularly important benefit to doing this, and that that yeah. comes down to the simple fact that there's only so much fuel. That is readily accessible in the form of um, carbohydrates. Um, that that you that you you know that there is a time limit. There's a quantity and a time limit involved um, mm-hmm. for carbs. And then body fat, of course, there's a there's kind of a, a much larger sort of unlimited supply almost. I mean, do you want to just take us a little bit into that as to uh, as to what we're talking about?
1: yeah so for for the normal person who eats kind of a, a normal well in terms of normal higher carbohydrates uh diet or nutrition plan they they probably have stores you know anywhere between about fourteen hundred to two thousand calories of carbohydrate in their body depending on gender and depending on on um muscle mass because you'll store more if you're a larger male and and vice versa with a small petite female so that that fourteen hundred to two thousand um calories of carbohydrate that will yield them about two two and a half hours maybe three hours if they're lucky of moderate intense exercise and which, which is great I mean that's the onus of all these sport nutrition carbohydrate companies always uh, you know recommending take our product every 30 minutes we want to keep on the we want to keep the carbohydrates coming in the body uh, what they don't realize is that we actually we, we can prolong that and, and to your point of the fat stores in our body the the same person average recreational um, person who who undergoes physical activity can have in excess of of 80,000 calories of fat stores in their body. So that can last. You know, I think I, I think it's about ten to twelve marathons back to back to back. Um, so you, you the energy exists in the body in terms of fat. The the process and the question is how do we tap into that energy while preserving our carbohydrates so we don't you know affectionately as the the marathoners in the u.s call it how do we not bonk and and i don't necessarily believe in the term bonking <laughs> well um, especially but, if
0: but, you live in the uk Bob, because bonking yeah. has a whole nother connotation yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well, we'll call that carbohydrate depletion or yeah. glycogen depletion, right? Yeah. But but I think uh, again we have so many so many more op- so much more opportunity to increase our opportunity to use fat as energy, and and it's nothing. I mean I didn't learn this in undergrad. I didn't learn this in graduate school. I mean we all learned about the crossover concept, but never was there a lecture or anybody saying here's how we can change that. It was all, look at the papers from the 1960s, 1950s, here's what we know, there you go, have have fun with it, you know, and, and that's all we know. I think it's just been recently in the last decade, decade and a half, where we're, you and I specifically, and other practitioners are starting to ask the question, Can we do this from a diet and an exercise standpoint? Can we change this? And more importantly, how do we change it based on each person? Because we know even for elite athletes, they still have about thirty to 40,000 calories worth of fat in their body. It, It exists. We just need to figure out a way to actually get into those stores a little bit more to mobilize them.
0: Yes, and uh, and actually, as you and I were discussing a little bit of this offline before we started recording, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I know you've got a, a lot of data, and I've now got a lot of data, and um, you know, and we'll have to obviously publish some of this because um, I think it'll help people really see what's going out there, and it's not it's not just like you see in the textbooks. There's some really fascinating stuff, and I I I got to say, one of the things that got me hooked was, yes, this has a profound impact on on enabling people to achieve optimal body composition and health uh uh improvements that that's what initially got me hooked but then as i started to work more with team sports like rugby and football teams uh, soccer teams uh, particularly yes. here in in the uk i was starting to find other stuff uh, because i didn't work so much with the um endurance athletes like the triathletes and and the ultra endurance guys that you've worked with my, my my lot were mostly sort of intermittent sports athletes strength power you know the guys who just don't worry about right. this sort of thing but you know what we were finding we were finding that not only were they now achieving great body composition and health markers and of course a healthy athlete is a is a superior athlete every time right. but but also it's this business of helping your athlete hang on to um, their glycogen stores so that they are able to, you know, to whip out that extra special something in the second half of the game. And and like you say, not bonk and, and produce, you know, those those amazing situations in a game where they start achieving sort of incredible performance at a time when everyone else is just knackered as we say just exhausted so so sparing that glycogen um slowing down or 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 reducing the rate at which we deplete the glycogen Mm -hmm. um, by using fat at high levels of intensity has been absolutely awesome and and i think that's a key concept here for our listeners to understand this isn't just about endurance i mean it is it this is something that all of your endurance athletes need to be doing this um, absolutely but but it's not just for them it, it's also for your rugby players football players your uh your guys who might be out there for you know 90 odd minutes on the pitch but by the end of the game they're, they're they're pretty done and also for those athletes that have multiple events in one day uh mm-hmm. or have multiple events in a week where glycogen repletion can be an issue just sometimes you just don't get the carbs back in fast enough
1: right and um right.
0: If you are able to um, to spare some glycogen and use up a bit more fat, then it's it's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I actually noticed on that point is recovery is a lot faster in in all types of athletes because if 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 you think about the the basic concept here, if you're if you're depleting less carbohydrate during a session or during a competition, you're actually ending with more carbohydrate in your body than you would have previously. So repleting that glycogen, repleting those carbohydrates actually becomes a lot easier. So I have, I have athletes able to do two, three sessions in a day uh, without any issue at all. And, and especially like in tournament play, because I, I work a lot with, with, with soccer, you know, um, um, football uh, athletes here and and young and and more recreational Uh, and we find in tournament settings they can bounce back a lot faster if we just develop that little bit of of glycogen sparing through the the development of metabolic efficiency
0: yeah so uh, i want to i want to get into how we even go about doing this stuff in a second but Mm -hmm. i i think uh one thing that crops up in my own practice for sure is i i kind of i can convince my athletes uh and the regular members of the public that i work with um about the benefits of of this um to a certain extent uh, partly on the basis of them being overweight the the Mm. the the guys that that i really have to push the performance benefits to are those that have great body comp they look Mm. fit they look at they look awesome already so they're like you know why should i bother about manipulating my, um, my my nutrition and periodizing it. You know, I, I look great, I'm performing well enough as it is. I mean, what do you say uh, to your athletes in that situation?
1: Yeah. The, the first thing, I, I, I kind of play the health card, I call it, right, so I, I you know, to that point I ask about Uh, genetic influences in terms of disease states and and I actually have them get blood work testing just to just so I can be a little have a little peace of mind and say okay things look good or if not which happens in nine times out of the ten athletes of of those type of athletes I work with blood work comes back you know something is a little bit off balance where I've I've got that shoe in the door where I can actually help them now Um, the other thing that comes up is the age of the athlete so I actually work with our our US Olympic sailing team and a lot of these sailors some of them are are more of our developmental, but the Olympic guys and girls, you know, they're on the three quarters to last half of their or last bit of their career. And when when the athlete ages, I've I've just found anecdotally that metabolic efficiency can actually improve the health of that athlete so much and improve the recovery immune system functioning that I might be able to to have them have the last couple of years of their career as as some of the best or they may even be able to extend their career so those are the two cards I, I somewhat play with with either the aging athletes or the athlete who where we don't have uh, quantitative blood work yet I like to take a look at that
0: yeah no absolutely yeah. and 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 um I I mean I've definitely found that even with my athletes that have really quite fantastic body composition, mm-hmm. they still aren't necessarily metabolically as efficient oh. as they could be, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which is why of course it's you know you and I and any of the listeners that have metabolic testing kit um, are lucky where you can actually demonstrate to them visually um, how well they um oxidize fats and carbs and how efficient right. they are or are not and obviously it's context specific uh, right. and um i i think um what, what we should get into how do we you know fix some of this stuff um yeah just just before that though it's worth saying here though that that we're not talking about um you need to be low carb we're not talking about right. high carb um or you know not eating fats or eating high fats we're talking about the sort of strategic and intelligent um manipulation and or for to use a better term the sort of the periodization of these these substrates and macronutrients in order to bring about efficiency right
1: Absolutely, and you know i I refer to that as kind of a, a, a nutrient teeter totter right so um, in the in the setting of carbohydrate, protein, and fat the way, the way my mind works is i get I get protein to where I need it to be in, an, in a person 's uh, daily diet, and then they, that is that is the fulcrum right that is what what the carbohydrates and the fat balance on. And you know at some points carbohydrates may increase a little bit and at some points they may decrease and while fat increases or decreases so it's kind of a carbohydrate fat game with the maintenance of protein for the most parts um, because because we're trying to cycle this we're trying to periodize this based on the athletes training cycle body weight goals body comp goals maybe even health goals so it's it is it is I, I I definitely want to stress to the listeners just like you said it it is this is not all low carb, high fat. Are there? Could there be times of that? Absolutely. But there could also be control. You know, I, I refer to this whole thing as controlling and modulating carbohydrate intake, mm. and with that comes the control and modulation of fat intake, also.
0: Yeah, and I think you know when we and we'll have to do a podcast all about nutrition periodization, particularly oh, yeah. for endurance athletes. I've got. Yep. Uh, well, I did one with uh, Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld, all about okay. nutrient timing, and that was a hell of a, a great. Podcast, but of course that was kind of more about sort of bodybuilders and physique athletes and stuff. And there are some different angles when you're referring to um, sort of more uh, endurance-based athletes. Um, But of course, we're we're not really here talking about uh, manipulating nutrition like the day before an event. I mean, in your experience, I mean, in a typical person who... You know, we know they're metabolically not as efficient as they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what sort of time frame are we looking at here? What, what you know, what, 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 how does time influence this?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because I mean. I have shown that with an athlete who is very susceptible and willing to change and and actually listen to us, right, uh, and implement what we're asking, it can take literally five to seven days to change their metabolic efficiency. Maybe not to the point where we want it, but they can definitely start on that first week of changing it. Um, I usually allow, in practical terms, I allow a good four-week kind of a startup process because that allows... For the athlete to go through some behavior change allows some some kind of hits and misses, and it kind of allows them to to gradually progress through this instead of rushing it. Because I want this in the end to be a lifestyle change where athletes learn how to balance their blood sugar through through different pairings of food. But I also want them to learn how to periodize it based on the the time of the year of their training, their competition season, and maybe even their their age and, and career in their in their sport. So it's it's really looking long term. But but I give it a good four weeks to start with and then reevaluate after that
0: yeah i have certainly seen it happen within a two-week period mm-hmm. uh and as long as six weeks uh but then that i've found also that that's kind of gone down more of the metabolic uh flexibility issue pathway where they've they've kind of had some issues with actual sugar handling and right. glucose uptake and you know they're, they're not being too good with their insulin and glucose transporters yep. and so on. Um, so I, I guess another uh, thought here is behavior and habits. Mm. I mean, what what we're talking about here is something that's very much a physiological phenomenon. Um, right. But of course probably the biggest thing that influences this is your daily habits and behaviors when it comes to nutrition isn't it um, absolutely and it, and it and what i like to say to my my clients and athletes is is you know it's what we do on average um that that's what we more or less adapt to you know so if, if on average uh you know you do a bicep curl once a year not a lot yeah. of adaptation is going to occur but if you do it a couple of times a week then something will and of course people don't realize that That yes, of course, your physical activities um, and you know the frequency, time, and type, and all those other things that influence that Mm -hmm. um, result in various kinds of physiological adaptations. Well, so too does your eating and drinking uh, habits. You know, uh, can also influence adaptations
1: absolutely it's and, and that's something to really stress that I stress with people too is this this isn't like you know in the past everybody jumped on the carbohydrate loading bandwagon, and you know decades ago it was it was a five to seven day protocol and now it's a two to three day protocol, maybe even a one day and you know i i'm trying to get get people to think outside of that because all they're doing is saying. I'm going to eat however I want and then the week or a few days before my competition I'm going to start changing things. And what we want to do is flip-flop that and say we're actually going to create a lifestyle change so you're just eating normal you're you're eating like this this metabolic efficiency way long term throughout the throughout the the span of the year or the years. And then once competition pops up and and I love this question because athletes say, "Okay, now what do I do?" Well, you've been following this for months or maybe years don 't do anything different right because mm-hmm. they 're so used to carbohydrate loading and, and changing all these things, and I say the worst thing you can do is actually go behind your habit change that you've you 've been so good at, at doing so um, absolutely put the time in beforehand, develop a lifestyle nutrition change that supports you know uh, uh, attending to your body's oxidation rates for fat and carbohydrate preserving carbohydrate you know oxidizing more fat. That in the long term is is really going to benefit them more than than thinking about this carb loading or, or any other strategy that they can put in.
0: Yeah, and you know people love to make everything just overcomplicated, don't they? And, and, <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, uh, for all the rocket science you may apply to your pre and post workout routines, um, everything you do at other times of the day may actually have a more profound impact. Um, on your physiological or biochemical adaptations, because it's, it's what you're doing more often than you are around your post and pre workout sort of routine. So it it is yeah. always worth looking at the bigger picture. Um, it is. So well, before we get into us, uh, you know how to how to improve all of this. Um, let's just just quickly um, sort of you know explain or describe for those that don't know metabolic testing. Labs, Which will be most people. Uh, I mean, how are you, you know, how would you guess someone's probably uh, metabolically inefficient? What do you think are the the, the most obvious signs that, that that person is metabolically inefficient?
1: yeah, more more qualitative, you're asking, right? Yeah. without the testing. Yeah. yeah, so there there are a few things that I use. one, if if uh if an endurance athlete specifically, so basically, if someone trains for you know longer than than ninety minutes, two hours, if they are feeding every thirty to forty five minutes, that's a clear sign of of a little bit of being metabolically inefficient because they're they're burning through more of their carbohydrate stores. I also look at um, I mean obviously the the blood markers, but that's more quantitative. I look at just the aesthetic. Uh, composition of their body, and just ask them simple questions like, "How has your body composition changed? Um, if it has, how's your body weight changed?" Because normally, um, certainly not all, but uh, some of the athletes I work with, when they follow high carb diets, they're you know you see a, a more visible uh, layer of body fats. Um, they're they're not able to lose the weight or the pounds that they've always tried to. So those stubborn you know that stubborn weight loss. Um, I also see very sluggish behaviors, especially in the latter part of the day, where they're reaching for the caffeine. Um, so, which is a simple, uh, more, most of the time, simple sign that they're just not controlling their blood sugar, they have too many carbohydrates in their diet, and they're not pairing their protein and fat correctly, uh, and, and really looking at their recovery from exercise. If they're sore, um, minus you know, doing new exercises or strength exercises, if they're sore, if it's taking longer than 24 hours to recover from hard workouts, those are just more qualitative things that I look at in terms of probably being a little bit more down the metabolic inefficient path.
0: Yeah, no, that that was bang on, and I and I yeah. do I collect people's asses, you know assess their symptoms as well as do all mm-hmm. the quantitative stuff, and that is exactly what I see, and of course that is that is uh, that is basically everyone sitting in the office. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I, that's what I love about this stuff, and as I I mentioned off air, you know, I don't like to use the word sports and exercise nutrition for my practice mm-hmm. because, and you know, I call myself a performance nutritionist because. I think it's the same. Whoever you are, we all want to function at our best, and not everyone's an Olympic athlete. But a lot of people um, may only, you know, jog or run two, three times a week, but they still want to function at their best at work. They still got to catch a bus when they run for it. Uh, there's all kinds of things there, and of course, what we're discussing here is appropriate for for everyone. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: So, so Bob, uh, let's let's so let's get into how do we how do we improve someone's metabolic efficiency. So, I mean, just take us through the key things that that you feel need to be done with with someone in order to, to get them into a better place with this.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I think you know if if someone has the means to actually have their metabolic efficiency tested, uh, with using you know physiology metabolic cart, I think that's the best thing to start with. I know it's not available for everyone, and and that's totally fine. But if people have means to it, um, I I like to tell the people I work with and the athletes I work with, if if we don't know where we're starting, it's really hard to fix to to change that along the journey. Now the journey may take a lot longer if we don't know where we're, where a starting point is. So. If they have the means, definitely get the physiological testing first for metabolic efficiency. Yeah, which I will. No, we'll
0: talk Yeah, I will. And uh, I just want to interject because uh, I, I know it's going to be the same in the states because I lived out there for so long. Uh, but in the UK, I mean, often if you if you look around for your local um, sports science department at a university, uh, often they all have this kit that, that right. you and I have got, and they may not know what they're doing with it in terms of. Metabolic flexibility testing, but they can right. do substrate analysis or fat max tests or mm-hmm. I know I know there's a specific protocol you like to follow, but you can get an insight. Um, uh, 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 from that, so sorry, I, I budged. No, that,
1: absolutely. So. Well, in the machinery, like you said, I mean, all all that's needed is a metabolic cart, and you can you can run different protocols uh, based on what you're what you're looking for, basically. But you know, from from the from the metabolic efficiency, how do we change it? Standpoint, you know, I've I've kind of come up with the with a ratio that metabolic efficiency, uh, the majority of changing someone's ability to use fat and preserve carbohydrate is about seventy five percent indicative of nutritional changes and about 25% indicative of exercise changes. So we we know both exercise and nutrition definitely have a, a part in improving someone's metabolic efficiency, but nutrition is, is definitely more profound. And you know that's one of the differences that, that we see. And even looking at the crossover concept when it was studied, it was only looking at uh, the exercise intensities, not really a nutrition strategy to, to improve that. So on the very basic level, and I tell my athletes all the time, I've, I've got a little mantra I share with them. I say, say, when it comes to nutrition, what we want to focus on is simple is sustainable so i want to make this actually simple and away from numbers as much as possible in the beginning because i want them to be able to sustain this and and not for it to be a chore so what i look at are very very you know the easy concept of we need to control blood sugar through pairing macronutrients effectively first that's that's the first and foremost we want to control blood sugar control the insulin response control the enzymatic response that comes with High insulin levels, right, so we want to control all this, and, and the beauty is we do it by putting together protein fat and fiber right and, and as practitioners, we need to come up with the ideal strategy for each person because everybody has different taste needs and, and dietary needs but I, I actually start very rough in, and it 's actually taking some data from uh, what we know about people with diabetes and because they need to control their carbohydrate quite a bit. Where I start with people is very simple. I I I I do a 1 to 1 ratio and I use hand their hands as a model. I say your left hand is the quantity of protein that I want you eating at every meal. And and this is the whole hand from the wrist to the fingertips, not just the palm. Your right hand is the amount of fiber that I want you to eat. So I, I'm I'm I have preference of vegetables, fruits, and then grains, uh, mostly in that order. I really try to plug the veggies and the fruits a little bit more. Um, the fat normally is found in the protein source for the most part, especially for eating animal proteins. Um, so I don't really, unless I'm putting someone if, if I'm exaggerating fat, that's when I start adding some some additional fat. But by this very basic hand model that I use, one hand protein, one hand fiber if you, if they control their meals in that manner and, and choose the foods in that manner, they will control their blood sugar in such a way that they will actually start um, enzymatically uh, improving their body's ability to oxidize fat and, and preserve those carbohydrates. So it actually starts with a very basic concept of controlling blood sugar through food.
0: Yeah. And I think it's worth just quickly going into this. Uh, I know on the uh, issn diploma postgraduate program that i lead uh we had some lectures by dr emma stevenson from university of northumbria who for her own phd uh did all that that sort of research on glycemic index Mm. um and how high glycemic foods um you know really does affect fat oxidation do you you Mm -hmm. want to just quickly explain about that just so why people are wondering why do i even need to bother about controlling blood sugar
1: yeah it's uh you know from the glycemic index standpoint it's 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 a little bit tricky i mean i I try to teach not having carbohydrates by themselves yeah. um but it, if if an athlete does and and i'm I'm out of the days where you know have your high glycemic index immediately after after training i think once a, an athlete is metabolically efficient. Uh, we don't necessarily have to to plug up our system necessarily with all these high glycemic index foods because it does. It causes uh, a, uh, an effect of high insulin spike. We're we're not controlling our body's ability uh, from a biochemical standpoint to to oxidize those fats anymore. So I think you know a lot of the athletes I deal with are still on the high glycemic index index train where I need a lot of simple sugars. I need them quick. And that's just not the case when we develop metabolic efficiency. It's actually it's actually the exact opposite that we want to do. So these this this fiber rule that I have, you know, lower glycemic index for sure, vegetables, um, fruits, but but always always with a protein source and a fat source um, to to somewhat counterbalance it. It's not going to counterbalance the the glycemic index as a, as itself, but it definitely counterbalances the effect of that insulin spike or blood sugar spike that that carbohydrate, that high glycemic index carbohydrate would have on its own.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, I think it's fair to say that you could take any client uh, and if you get them to uh, optimize their protein intake um, mm-hmm. and uh, increase their intake of, you know, nutrient-dense vegetables. Uh, and, of course, the proteins are sources of, of good fats for the most part, as long as you're choosing mm-hmm. quality foods. Yep. Um, and, of course, you're high fiber but not not too rich in starches and sugars. You're going to fix Great. a lot of issues in a lot of people. Oh. Uh, so, I, okay, so that's a good start with people. And, obviously, a lot of this is going to be, you know, you, the nutritionists and PTs and whatnot out there that are listening to this and thinking about Okay, man. I'm going to get my clients to do all this stuff. Of course, you've got to bear in mind that, that people have got a lot of bad habits and bad, bad behaviors, Great. and, and uh, it is amazing how many people don't even eat, don't even know what a vegetable looks like, let, let alone, you know, has a whole hand's worth uh, every time they feed. Um, but are, I mean, are there any other issues here um, with with their diet um, that you typically have to focus on?
1: Uh, you know, some, some. Issue, and, and you let me know if I'm on the right page here with, with answering your question, but I think some challenges are, you know, we're asking people to to eat animal proteins, to eat more vegetables and, and you know, maybe a little bit less on the grains to, to start with for sure depending on, on what our goals are for them. What I have an issue with sometimes in the challenge is just just having that person be confident with the nutrition strategy. So a lot of them, again, I mean, a lot of this is counterintuitive to, as you mentioned before, the decades of of research that have said high carb, low fat, high carb, low fat. And you know, at least in the US, we've seen what that's done to our society in the past 20-30 years with the disease states. Um, and, and I, I feel that we've got to almost change the paradigm of thinking with these people. Um, and once once you do, they love the nutrition, they love the food part of it because it's it, you know, typically these people have followed these these crazy diets in the past, and you know, they feel liberated when they when they Go on a metabolic efficiency plan. They feel liberated because they can eat food, right? And, and obviously, we want to guide them to the more healthier uh, options. But they can eat real food. They don't have to eat box food. I mean, we're talking about you know more, more as we can, food from the earth, and just pairing the protein, fat, and fiber together instead of box foods or counting calories or counting points. So it's kind of a breath of fresh air for them after they get over that trust and confidence hump.
0: Sure. And uh, there's going to be scenarios, isn't there, where you might have a slightly different ratio of, Absolutely. of protein to sort of carbohydrate ratio, yep. and I know, I know you, you make a point of this in, in your book. Do you want to just get, yeah. take us through that?
1: Yeah, I've done this quite a bit, and this is kind of utilizing my concept of nutrition periodization too, but, but I'm I'm infamous for actually periodizing within this hand model or the carbohydrate to protein ratio model. I'll, I'll optimize an athlete's plan, even, even from a daily perspective. And I call this microcycle periodization where I'll take an athlete's week and I'll see what type of training they have and what their coach's goals are for them and, and kind of the intensity and duration of their training. And based on that, I will either go from a one to one ratio of carb to protein, um, throughout the day or on a pre post, um, training. And I'll Or sometimes I'll rotate it through a two-to-one or a three-to-one. I rarely go three-to-one, but I'm, I'm very infamous for doing two-to-one, especially around that nutrient timing window on very aggressive training days or very aggressive workouts. So I'll, I'll go up and down with that all the time. Um, I've actually worked with some of our sailors here where I've, I've done a reverse. So I've done like a, a one-to-two um carbohydrate to protein at certain times because we want to influence a little bit more weight loss while we can try to preserve a little bit more muscle mass at the same time. Difficult, but, but we try our best through nutrition. So there's, there's a lot of maneuvers you can do with these with these ratios.
0: Yeah, no, th- thank you. And I, I think it's important to point out that it is important when you, when, you know, when you're working with someone or if you're doing this on yourself, you try and establish some sort of baseline uh, which could be seeing guys like you and me for the metabolic testing or go mm-hmm. go to your local university or find a, a physiologist who can run a test on you uh, get some body composition testing uh, if you're really lucky something like a deXA uh, yeah. or a, a, you know something like an Isaac um, skinfold uh, mm-hmm. uh, assessment um, you know and there's various other tests and assessments that can be done because you need to be able to, you need to be able to compare you know, um, progress back to your baseline to see what's actually happening, and obviously it's how you feel, performance. But you also want to see, you know, is there any physiological changes, even blood work, that that right. that, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, as you start to progress, uh, or if you're not progressing, then of course um, you're obviously going to start telling them to keep doing what they're doing or fine tuning, mm-hmm. right, so that they're constantly um, constantly progressing, right?
1: Right, absolutely, and that's that's where you know if, if the athlete kind of comes to a sticking point and you know you're scratching your head and we're kind of at a point where they are actually following the nutrition recommendations and training recommendations and they're doing everything right. That's where I kind of come back to the testing because quantitatively we can validate if it's working or not. And and to be quite honest, sometimes I've used the metabolic testing, uh, metabolic efficiency testing to change my nutrition plan for an athlete because I found that that first nutrition plan was not working for their particular body. Therefore, we needed to come in, test again, and then try a different strategy. So it's it's a great checks and balances, for sure.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think there's, I mean, there's so much in this topic. And oh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, like I say, you and I, uh, as we discussed off off air, I think we're going to do a uh, do a bit of uh, publish a few papers on this, which I think the readers will find interesting. And absolutely. I do recommend. Uh, our listeners, if they haven't done so already, they start to look into my other podcast with Mike T Nelson on metabolic flexibility because that's that's got some stuff on this topic there. And of course, uh, there's uh, there's a there's a whole lot more that we don't know um, mm-hmm. about all of this. But I think what's key, and and we get to learn this as practitioners, particularly if you've been around for a while. Um, and I and I believe this strongly and I try and get my students to recognise this as being an important thing they should focus on with, with their work is our job as as nutritionists or practitioners that are giving nutritional advice is, is not to overcomplicate um, what, what our clients are doing it's to simplify what they're doing and, and identify what are the limiting factors that are in their way and just get them to focus on those key things because telling someone how many Calories or grams or or whatever um, you know, uh, making it super complicated on top of their training plan, their life, um, their their work, and everything else they've got to worry about. You're now getting super complex, and in reality, simplifying it like your hand model. I use that myself. Yep. Um, in fact, I've got uh, 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 Brian Saint Pierre and um, Dr. John Baradi coming on. Uh, from Precision Nutrition um, on, on, on this podcast later on in the year uh, and one of the things that they're really into is all this business of simplification absolutely uh, and uh, and they they are very much into using the hand model you know like your hand is representative yep. protein and um a fist is uh is veggies and a cup yep. to palm of your hand is carbs blah 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 thumb is fats and so on and i think I, that has made a big difference to to my own practice with people is is giving them simple stuff because you you don't you don't have to be within a few calories or within a few grams necessarily uh, to get the results. Just being generally right, um, and then yep. learning how to eat instinctively um, can often be um, a really wonderful outcome for this, where you're decluttering oh, their life, isn't it? And that's what exactly. we're doing. Exactly. Um, so, listen. Um, I you know we're already out of time. So I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there. Let's get you back on, and we'll talk a bit more about periodization of nutrition because I think that's really a great sort of part two to this, because it's Absolutely. It's very much an influence, and, and it's very much a practical side to this. But for the listeners, um, you know, as you know, we're not overly commercial about anything here, but I really do recommend you check out um, Bob's uh, website, which is Fuel four months um, and that's fuel uh, the number four months m-a-n-c dot com bob Sibahar, uh, check out his books check out his information on this uh, if you're in the states uh, particularly in colorado sort of areas is it colorado no you're in yep. arizona aren't you no in,
1: in colorado, in right colorado the-
0: i know you've yep. got a lab there so you can run tests obviously i in london uh, i do all these tests as well and do look up your Local sports science departments at universities and physiologists, and just ask them if they can run these tests for you, and um, and uh, get an insight into what's happening with your own metabolism. And for those of you that are practitioners, just think about this stuff. You know, whether you like what we're saying or not saying, um, the fact is, is this really does make a difference, um, and it's and it's well worth you you thinking about this if if you hadn't thought about this already. So thanks, Bob. Thanks for your time. Uh, it's, no, it's been a pleasure. pleasure. Uh, that brings us to the end of um, the episode 11 of the We Do Science uh, good Performance uh, Podcast, all about metabolic efficiency. Um, For more information about the podcast and uh, what we're doing at Guru Performance at our lab, uh, but also the postgraduate education programs we produce uh, in conjunction with the International Society of Sports Nutrition uh, and all kinds of other stuff about performance nutrition, please uh, check out guruperformance.com. My name is Laurent Bannock and I look forward to bringing another podcast to you all very soon.